I'm Abby Kinney, and you are listening to Upzoned. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of Upzone, a show where we take one big story from the news each week that touches the Strong Towns conversation, and we Upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby Kinney, and I'm an urban planner with Gould Evans, and joined with me today is our regular co-host and my friend Chuck Marone, founder of the Strong Towns organization. Thanks for joining me. Hey, it's so nice to chat with you. Thank you for doing this. You know, I don't say that enough. You you started doing this earlier this year. And I have to tell you, I look forward to the days when we get to chat. So it's very nice to talk to you. I always look forward to chatting with you too, Chuck. This has been a lot of fun. So we are going to be talking about a subject that I think is very timely right now. We're going to be talking about localism today. And the article that we're covering was published in the New York Times and written by Damien Cave. It's entitled... What if local and diverse is better than networked and global? So the story starts out with an account from a cattle rancher from the South New Wales coastal region who has in the past year become more critically aware of the volatility of his globally distributed business. He was describing this to a scholar named Helena Norberg-Hotch, who has been a leading advocate for localism worldwide as the founder and director of Local Futures and the International Alliance for Localization. Her work spans several decades, during which markets and governments have leaned towards globalization. And localism, according to this article, is based on two profound concepts. First, that shorter distances are healthier than longer distances for both commerce and human interaction. And second, that diversification is healthier than a monoculture, which is what globalism tends to create. So the economic and social impacts of coronavirus obviously have cast a light on the localism movement across the globe. And according to Norbrook Hodge, the coronavirus might actually be a beneficial disruption that leads us to what she calls medium-sized lifestyles. So I'll just say that I've not heard of her work before reading this article, but I can certainly see how the principles of localism are very intertwined into so many other aspects of our conversations, and it particularly aligns with the work of strong towns. And with this hectic election this week, I think that our country is experiencing some reasons that that localism would be incredibly important. Let me start with uh, mea culpa in a sense, or a, a confession, maybe in in the you know growing up tradition. My first election that I ever voted in was 1992, so that was George Bush and Bill Clinton, and I was around for the 1994 Republican Revolution, which was a, a huge deal for me as a conservative, as someone who identified as Republican, to watch the House of Representatives in particular that have been controlled by one party uh, since the, really since the Eisenhower era, now flipped to a different party. And it was an exciting time. And it was, you know, there, there was a lot there that, that I was excited about as a, as a young person in college watching this happen. I strongly identified with in a sense, like the talking points of conservatives, which a lot of it had to do with limited government, you know, small C conservative kind of nature of things. Uh, Let's distribute power. 
there was a lot of talk of things like charter schools and block grants and and different ways of essentially disempowering the federal government, the top-down centralized systems, and empowering local systems. This was exactly what I thought should happen. Through successive administrations where Republicans held, you know, absolute power, both houses of Congress held the presidency and what have you. And this has happened now a, a couple of times in my life. What you have seen is just repeatedly like the exact opposite, right? You've seen a, a greater push for centralization. Of course, the Democratic Party has has been, for my entire life, the party of centralization. And there's this notion that I, I kept hearing a lot that there's really no difference between these two parties. And I'm, I'm as someone who was, you know, as late as maybe 2004, uh, kind of vested heavily in, you know, the presidential race and the big, you know, what was going to happen in Congress. I found that to be crazy. I'm like, there's so much difference between Republicans and Democrats. How can this, how can you possibly say that? Can't you see there's like this world of difference between them? And what I recognized slowly over time was the people who were telling me that were conservatives. The people who were telling me that were liberals. The people who were telling that were from weird parts of the spectrum. And I was just looking at it as a line. You know, you're either left or you're right. You're on this like line. And what they were showing me or, or trying to help me understand was that there's really a, a whole nother axis, a whole nother like realm to inhabit. More so than left and right, there is a top-down type of impulse and there is a bottom-up type of impulse. I believe I was wrong uh, to look at things the way I would look at it. Um, I'm not saying I'm completely right now, but what I have found is I have found that people who identify as left of center in ways that in just a straight line linear, I'm very uncomfortable with. I find them to be some of my strongest allies, some of my best friends, some of the people I, I have the most in common with and see most eye to eye, even though I identify as conservatives. When we start talking about localism, we start talking about bottom-up systems, and we start talking about how, how we create systems that are responsive to, to people. If I could just read one thing, and then I'll shut up for a little bit. One of the more profound things that I was made aware of this summer comes from the movement for Black Lives, of kind of the political arm of, of Black Lives Matter. I was pointed to their website and I went through their platform. And, and there's parts of it that I, you know, like any complex platform, you don't agree with all of it, but there's a lot of it that I found very compelling. And I'm just going to read one part of it. They, uh, this is from uh, the movementforblacklives.org website. We demand a world where those most impacted in our communities control the laws, institutions, and policies that are meant to serve us. From our school boards and our local budgets, economies, police departments, and our land. I completely agree with that statement. And so here's an organization that I think would identify strongly as very left of center in our current political discussion that, you know, me who identifies, you know, more as right of center, uh, find absolute agreement with, because when we're talking about, you know, a, a world that draws its actions from, you know, the, the people in the communities that are being served, I think we wind up in a completely different dialogue, one that actually can serve well people on the left and people on the right simultaneously. Yeah, I think the political compass is an important picture to look at when you're thinking about where people fall on this spectrum, because I actually think that people on the right and on the left of the political spectrum 
have more in common when they are thinking in terms of bottom up than people on kind of the more authority driven place on the political spectrum on both sides. I think a lot about what we talk about when we think about localism and bottom up strategies are are stemming from the principle of subsidiarity, which calls for local and social issues to be dealt with at the most local level possible. And I hear a lot of people talk about that these days. I think there's certainly some debate about what kinds of issues should be addressed at different scales, but I I tend to lean to the idea of localism or incrementalism because it enables us to make mistakes with less devastating consequences. When you do things locally or have more local authority, it allows people to be fallible, which is what humans are. And especially as professionals who have specialized in an industry, I just think it's really important to recognize that our ideas and our vision of the world are just not guaranteed to be successful. I see a lot of policies and systems that have really good intentions, yet the energy behind trying to make an impact tends to scale upwards. And it's almost as if the default position has been to apply top-down approaches in order to solve huge problems in our society. So what Strong Towns really gets at is the idea of allowing communities to try new ideas incrementally. And I actually think that this is an important approach to building stronger relationships between governmental systems and people who live in neighborhoods. You know, in in my own city, in my own neighborhood, it, it feels impossible to implement small changes that would just help people's everyday lives, things like trying to get some street trees planted or trying to find ways to improve the street and calm traffic, or even, you know, rebuilding a home in an older neighborhood. It's all things that get met with hurdles. And this isn't because the people who work in local government don't get it or aren't sympathetic to local needs, but I think it's because the systems that we have set up are not ideal for enabling more bottom-up approaches. And like many issues that we talk about, these things are systematic. And with so many problems that we face beyond just city planning, we're coping with established systems that skew upward when more localized autonomy could really enable people to be active stewards of their own community. The subsidiary argument is interesting. And to me, it's it's very eye-opening. It always has to be coupled with the idea of uh, which is inherent to subsidiaries, which is offering assistance. So it, subsidiary is the idea that issues should be handled, should be addressed at the level in which they are most competently able to be handled. The caveat to that is that it not only should they be addressed, but they must be addressed. And, and this often creates a tension because if you and your neighbors uh, need to work out an issue, Oftentimes what happens is there's an appeal to like a higher authority, like city, decide this for us, you know, as if they're like King Solomon, like split the baby. What subsidiarity says is that if the city is going to solve this problem, the way they solve it would be to help you work out a solution. In other words, if this is a solution that has to be made at the block level, or that can be made at the block level, it has to be made at the block level. Like you, you have to be empowered and have agency to actually decide this. And if you and your neighbors can't figure out whether you can have backyard chickens or not, or what color, you know, houses should be painted or whatever, like very local micro issue is driving people crazy. 
that's not for uh, some big ordinance to come in or some state legislation to solve. Uh, the way you solve that in a healthy democracy, in a healthy place, in a subsidiarity kind of environment is to say, all right, you warring neighbors can't figure this out. L let's sit down at the table. Let's, you know, share a, share a beverage. And uh, we're going to sit here and talk about this until you guys can come to some type of agreement. And, and we're literally, you know, that not agreeing is not an option. Like, you're going to have to solve this. We don't do that. And, and I, I think a lot of the disconnect that we have from each other, um, which, you know, it, it's, a, it's a reinforcing cycle. The more disconnected we have from each other, the more we look up to higher levels of organization to solve our problems, the more they are willing to step in. And of course, they're always willing to step in and take that power from us, uh, the more disconnected from each other we become. And it, it's, it's this, you know, cycle. You, you hear, and one of the quotes in this article, the, the New York Times opinion piece that we're looking at, that to me is, is so profound has to deal with gross domestic product. We have this debate right now. And when we, when we look over the economy, the one thing that everyone agrees on ostensibly in our political realm is that GDP should go up. We should be growing the economy. We should be growing growth domestic product. Growth in and of itself is good. If you read the modern monetary theory, which is the most leftist radical stuff on the spectrum today, and I, I don't say that derogatorily, I say it to, to put it in perspective, that whole conversation is about growing the economy. They repeatedly talk about GDP going up. Here, here's how Ms. Norberg-Hodge describes GDP. She says, quote, you must know this, but GDP is a measure of the breakdown of society and ecosystems. If the water is so polluted that we're providing bottled water, it benefits GDP. If you and I plant a garden and eat half the vegetables, GDP goes down. If you and I stay healthy, GDP goes down. If you need chemotherapy every year, GDP goes up. Nowhere in our dialogue, nowhere in our conversation today is that acknowledged. Yet when we talk about it, when, when I talk to people who are conservative, when I talk to people who are liberal and we talk about this, I get almost uniform agreement. Like, yes, that doesn't make sense. Yes, that's not what we want. Yes, we want a different system. That system is a bottom-up system. And bottom-up systems are chaotic. I mean, let's not pretend that they solve all problems and they're wonderful and perfect and it's a utopia. It's a lot of work. W to give us agency to solve our problems mean we actually have to exercise that agency. That is a lot of work. But I think, you know, that is the work that we're called to do. N not only, I think, as, you know, humans living together in a society, but I, I think that's what our representative democracy is founded upon. Yeah, I couldn't agree more with that because, you know, when they were talking about GDP in this article, it really struck me how it doesn't provide us with information about whether or not we're actually improving people's lives. It's like GDP can go up and up and up, but what does that actually look like for people on the ground in their everyday lives? I think that there's a good point to be made, too, about the value of localized human interaction, which, you know, because of coronavirus, it seems like that has become uh, less common these days and people are interacting online. And, you know, this year has just really opened my eyes to how destructive systems can become if they are too big. And it really amazes me how everything from medicine and PPE to even bicycle parts are just reliant on big, efficient systems and global markets. And 
you know, the first principle of localism talks about healthy distances for both commerce and human interaction. And that really stuck out to me because we talk a lot about financialization, but the concept of cherishing your local interactions, I think is just as important. And that's not to say that national conversations and national politics and rhetoric aren't important. But I think in a lot of ways, we become distracted by the national scale of things, and we can miss opportunities to focus our attention on what we have more control over, and that's our local communities. And I think that that starts with having conversations with people face-to-face, you know, listening to the people that we interact with in our everyday lives. It's interesting because, you know, whether you listen to someone like the Dalai Lama or Pope Francis, uh, who's, you know, someone that I'm plugged into, or or whether you listen to someone like Jordan Peterson, you know, who who is a very, you know, controversial figure for some, but is generally thought of as a, as a conservative person. The advice that they give individuals is always the same. Jordan Peterson actually says, clean your room. And, right. and <laughs> what he is saying is like, put your house in order, Right. This is Catholic teaching from, you know, the Pope on down. Uh, This is the Dalai Lama. This is every spiritual leader. It's like, here's the way I would describe it in like modern secular American terms. When you're on the flight, what do they tell you about your mask? Not your COVID mask, but the oxygen mask. They say, put your own oxygen mask on before you help others. And I think there's something like deeply insightful about that. We have to have our own house in order. We have to be stable people. We have to be people who care. We have to be people who can take care of our own things. Then, then we take care of the people around us. We uh, make sure that you know our families are tended to. The people in our neighborhoods are looked after. The people in our reach. These kind of things take up the bulk of our time and energy. And if we're doing them right, they will take up the bulk of our time and energy. Um, But if we're doing them right, they also become something to build off of, something where we can actually be more effective advocates for an increasingly broad area. The most effective people that I've ever run into are people who have made their bed. They're people who, you know, metaphorically have made their bed, basically have their house in order and uh, are able to use that as a way to care for those around them uh, in in ever-expanding circles. Yeah, it seems like such an obvious statement, but it's like change starts from within and you really do need to start, you know, with with yourself uh, in order to scale up. And I think a lot of the times we forget that. Well, I, I know that you are short on time today, so I think we'll end on that note because it's a positive one. But before we finish our conversation today, we're going to go into the down zone, which is the part of this show where we can share anything that has been captivating our attention. I'm curious if anything has been captivating your attention this week beyond <laughs> this very hectic election where we're just re- refreshing our browsers every few minutes. <laughs> It's funny because I have I have myself been able to find lots of separation from it, which I think has been really healthy. We we actually were invited here at Strong Towns to participate in a large uh, foundation grant process, uh, but it came in a very like short period of time, and so I've been writing this long long foundation request. This basically like this proposal, and when you do that, it forces you to think through a lot of things that that maybe just kind of spin around the edge but are not well organized. 
And that's actually been a distraction that has been healthy. And I think, you know, allow me to focus on some forward thinking things that have been really, really beautiful and rewarding, whether we get this project or not. I also was putting off, I hope people don't take this the wrong way, but I really wanted to read a couple of books this year and I wanted to read them outside of the election. And so I, I just started Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist. Probably more than any other book, that book was recommended to me. More than any other book, except maybe one or two, that book was also, to me, attacked by people. And I don't know, I wanted to read it for myself and I want to read it with an open mind. And, and I have a couple of people that I talk to about it. And so I've been struggling with it. It's a difficult book for me to read, but I think that's kind of the point. And I've been bouncing ideas off of people the last uh, the last week or so, and that's that's been rewarding. I'm I'm glad I'm doing it. Well, it's good to keep an open mind and listen to people and hear different perspectives, regardless of you know if if it's being attacked by one side or the other. I I think it's important to keep an open mind and to listen. And you know that's something that I kind of just wanted to share in my down zone because. I thought Daniel Harrigus at the beginning of the week wrote just an amazing piece. And I think it was called, We Don't Live in a World of Cartoon Villains. That I think was a very timely, it, it couldn't have been released at, the, at a better time. And I think that if you care about your local community, it's important to go read that article. Because if, if we can learn anything from this election, it's that we have such a deeply divided country, and I can understand that it's very emotional and stressful for people, including myself. And, you know, what I've learned over the past few years since 2016 is that when you start having deep conversations with people face to face, you realize that people have different perceptions of what is real. People are starting at different places. I kind of think about it as if, you know, we're all looking through different pinholes and trying to figure out what is going on on the other side of the wall. And we personally believe that our pinhole provides us the best and most accurate view of what is going on. And we believe that our friends or our neighbors or our family members that disagree with us just don't understand because their view is not as good as ours. And at best, they are just misguided and misinformed, or at worst, they're, they're, they're now evil. I think we need to really reckon with the fact that we live in a world of decentralized information. So we no longer have consensus over what exactly is true. And this is so unprecedented. We just really need to step back and analyze what is persuading our own version of reality. And I just think that if the commentators, writers, and influencers that we're following are trying to convince us that half of Americans are now evil, regardless of how you voted, we need to recognize that they are grifters and they're making money off of making Americans hate each other. So, you know, again, I understand this is an emotional time, but I just would ask listeners not to be radicalized into hating half of the country at this moment. And it's just that the intense hatred I've seen has just been really heartbreaking to me because I feel like we're constantly being told to hate each other and I refuse to do that. And I don't think we're ever going to make progress as a country if we are not willing to listen to each other and really understand why people have different perspectives than ours. Yeah. I think that's beautiful. And I, I couldn't agree more. 
whether you believe that it is God or it is evolution, however you personally look at the evolution or the, the progression of human history over time, I think what you have to recognize is that human societies have always been made up of people who are in tune with a conservative impulse and people who are in tune with a, a liberal impulse. And in a yin and yang kind of way, they, they do, particularly at the local level, balance each other out in ways that are very, very healthy. Societies that are dominated by conservatives, I wrote this in my book, tend to be overly hierarchical and despotic. Societies that are dominated by liberals tend to uh, be chaotic and dysfunctional. It takes a little bit of both. And, and I think once you recognize that and stop feeling threatened by it, uh, you can start to see beauty in a lot of places where you know it's it's often, if you're just plugged into the national message, difficult to find. I love Daniel's piece too, and I, I think it was a great way to to frame election week. Uh, I know he put a lot of, he had a lot of passion for it and put a lot of himself into it, as he does to most of his work, which I find to just be phenomenal. It was important, I think, for us because as an organization, we have dedicated ourselves to, and I'll just use the popular word, it's not the word we use internally, but we've, we've dedicated ourselves to diversity. But we include diversity among a lot of dimensions that, that maybe are not usually uh, included. And we include political diversity and just viewpoint diversity as being a big component of that. And so it's kind of a foundational tenet of who we are that all people are welcome at our table and as part of our movement. Um, and I'm, I'm just really proud that Daniel was able to enunciate that the way he did. Let's keep doing what we can, right, Abby? Like we will be, yeah. we'll be positive and it'll all work out. Yeah, everything's going to be okay. And, and I agree, Daniel okay. had an absolutely beautiful article. So yeah, I just wanted to highlight that today. And I think that uh, we just need to keep doing what we can. So uh, thanks for chatting with me today, Chuck. And thanks everyone for listening. And uh, as we always say, keep doing what you can to build a strong town and a strong country. Thanks, Chuck. Take care. Thank you. Let me show you what I'm about to do.